This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Unjust labor has been an ugly part of the American economy since the nation's earliest days. Here we are again, facing the oldest of problems, captive workers coming to rebuild infrastructure after a climate disaster. Much of that labor is done by immigrants from other countries, swindled into work agreements filled with false promises, including getting legal status. A green card for a migrant worker is the holy grail of immigration, right? But it's not for people who are welders and pipe fitters, who build refineries, who build infrastructure. Yet these are the people doing the hard work of cleaning up as climate-fueled disasters follow one after another. I came to understand these workers as the white blood cells of the climate crisis. Each time there was injury, these were the workers who arrived to heal. Socket Sony on the people who make disaster recovery possible, next on Climate One. As human-driven climate change amplifies the frequency and potency of natural disasters, we are increasingly dependent on one group of workers who live in the shadows, the migrant workforce that arrives to clean up and rebuild. In his book, The Great Escape, Socket Sony tells the personal stories of young men from India who were lured by ads to migrate to America with promises of good salaries. And more importantly, green cards in exchange for working on disaster recovery in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. The men had to pay up to $20,000 for this opportunity, a common part of the deal for such migrants. What follows is a chronicle of one of the largest human trafficking cases in modern American history. While Sony's book focuses on these particular men, it showcases the wider inequities and suffering faced by thousands of workers in similar positions. Sony is founder and director of Resilience Force, an organization working to ensure a more effective and equitable approach to disaster preparation, response, recovery, and rebuilding. Sony profiles many of these young Indian men who were swindled into captive labor, including Ebi Raju, who was skeptical of the American pitch. I asked Sony to explain the personal, family, and social pressures that compelled Ebi to go against his better judgment and come up with $20,000 that he didn't have for this job. Ebi is like a lot of young people in India. Mm. He went to school up until about 10th grade. And then after that, to support his family, he got a job fixing roofs for about a dollar a day. Mm. Uh, he went to Mumbai, to the big city, for a better job. But that wasn't quite enough. Indian prices were rising, just like here. There was the pressure of inflation. Uh, his parents were getting old. So he went out to Bahrain for an oil job. He built an oil refinery. And for a while, that money was, was, was enough. But then that wasn't enough. He came back to India. And he, now as a young adult, saw his family on the precipice of economic collapse. He didn't know what to do. So when he saw that ad for green cards in America, um, he thought it was a way out. He was initially skeptical, mm -hmm. but when he was told it would cost $20,000, uh, when he found the offer credible, he decided somehow to make it work. Because um, the way he put it to me, you leave the ones you love to help them live. Hmm. That's pretty powerful. So and he is just a typical person. There's many Ebbies out there, right? Many people in making the choices that he made and, and going down the path that he did. 
yeah, there are many, many millions of people like him. They think of the only viable career um, that they will ever have is as a migrant worker. Hmm. They aspire to be migrant workers. They don't want to leave home, but they have to because of economics, because of family security and, and economic safety. Um, and the thing that was atypical in Ebby's case was a person like him would usually never make it to America. Indian immigration to America, professional immigration, has largely been um, tailored for highly educated people mm -hmm. to come into the industries of medicine and tech. Ebby mm -hmm. is not one of those people. A green card for a migrant worker uh, is the holy grail of immigration, right? But it's not for people who are welders and pipe fitters, who build refineries, who build infrastructure, roads and homes. So that's when... Uh, when an American attorney shows up in India and convinces Ebi that it's real, Ebi thinks it's a chance of a lifetime. And when he and hundreds of other uh, immigrant workers like him arrived on the Gulf Coast, they could scarcely believe they were in America. It didn't match their imaginations at all. They were brought to fenced-in labor camps. Describe the conditions in these man camps. The conditions were Awful. Uh, Ebby and about 500 other workers thought they were coming on green cards for good jobs. But the first thing they learned were there were never any green cards. Um, they came in on temporary visas that let them uh, live and work legally in the United States just for a few months. During that time, they were bound to one employer. They couldn't leave. They couldn't work for anyone else if the employer was abusive. And they worked... Uh, round-the-clock shifts and lived in a labor camp on company property surrounded by barbed wire fences. For breakfast uh, each morning, they were eating frozen rice, which they warmed up for themselves, not in a microwave, but by sucking on the rice. That was their only meal um, to give them the sustenance to do really hard physical labor. Um, so the conditions were absolutely awful. But the, the real indignities, the deepest indignities that they faced, uh, I learned about once I started getting to know the workers. So for example, Ebby one day was 20 feet high on a platform doing really, really dangerous, complicated welding work. When he got a phone call, he picked up, it was his pregnant wife calling from 10,000 miles away uh, in India. She was about to go in for surgery. Hmm. And uh, then the phone died. And so there was Ebby uh, wondering when he would next see his son. And in fact, he didn't see his son that was born that day. He wouldn't meet his son for another three years. Those were the kinds of indignities that propelled the men to escape from the camp and launch them into their freedom march. These men literally were trapped inside these fences and they couldn't switch employers. Uh, at one point, a worker named Jacob says to you, quote, in, quote, in Dubai, in Bahrain, in Baku, we know how to get free, but how to get free in America? How did you answer him? Yeah, I remember that night very vividly. It was the first time I met Jacob. And in his, um, in his particular English, what he was asking was really technical. What he was saying is, look, I've been a captive worker in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. I've been a captive worker in Bahrain or, or in Baku. And uh, when you're a captive worker in the Middle East, if it gets really bad, if conditions are really abusive, there is recourse. There's a way to switch from one employer to another. 
But what about Mississippi? What about the United States? How do I switch from this abusive employer to another? That's what he was asking. But in his particular English, the way the question landed on me, it seemed like he was asking something far more profound. You know, he was asking a question as old as America. Captive labor has been a problem in American economies um, since the beginning of America. 1619. From, right, absolutely. From, from American slavery to American indentured servitude all the way to the American Bracero program that brought in immigrants. And what he was saying was, look, now in the, you know, at the, at the dawn of the climate era, in the most contemporary of times, here we are again facing the oldest of problems, captive workers coming to rebuild infrastructure after a climate disaster. Yeah, the land of the free thing is, you know, when it's, people are more free in labor markets in Dubai and Bahrain, that, that's really striking. Ebby is just one of many individuals whom you personalize and humanize in the book, The Great Escape. Who else stands out to you? Well, one worker who really stood out a lot um, was someone I met in the labor camp um, who became a partner and eventually a brother to me, the person who helped me devise the entire Great Escape. His mm. name was Rajan. Um, he was from two towns away from Ebby. Um, he was the kind of partner a labor leader dreams of. He was someone from inside the labor camp who would meet with me clandestinely, and he taught me about welding and pipe fitting. He taught me about uh, the work inside the labor camp, what the company was doing. He also taught me how to cook, and I'd smuggle him uh, Indian spices from outside. He'd take over the cafeteria in the labor camp and cook these meals, and the meals, all that Indian food was his organizing tool uh, to help the workers, uh, to convince the workers uh, to give me an audience, to hear from me about an option outside the labor camp. Um, he was the one who helped me convince 500 workers that they should escape. And when it came time to uh, get them out, uh, heist style, uh, it was a remarkable event over successive nights with the help of um, you know, uh, wild turkey, whiskey, uh, terrible uh, gas station flavored cigars, um, and a fictional wedding uh, that Rajan and I uh, were putting on at a hotel room, uh, at a hotel ballroom. Uh, Rajan helped me ferry workers five, six at a time over the Pascagoula River to a hotel, and that's how we engineered the Great Escape. Wow, really is. Sounds like a great escape. You've said that the hardest thing that you were up against with these workers wasn't their fear, it was actually their faith in America. What do you mean by that? Well, when the workers overcame their fear and escaped from the labor camp, they now faced new fear. Hmm. Um, we were hiding 500 men in um, a hotel, a hurricane-ravaged hotel that was in disrepair since Katrina. Um, the only place we could afford to put up 500 people. And the workers were sitting there waiting for the Department of Justice to act on their human trafficking complaint. They'd filed a complaint against the company alleging human trafficking and forced labor. And usually in these kinds of cases, the DOJ sends an investigator. In this case, a week went by and no investigator arrived. So what the men decided to do was march to D.C., to the doorstep of the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. um, we set out 
on a freedom march um, uh, from New Orleans to Washington. Uh, men carried uh, signs that said, I am a man and dignity uh, through Alabama, Georgia, through the vast stretches of the American South. And although they were uh, jeered at and bottles were pelted at them from passing cars, um, those kinds of blows only increased their faith because in their mind, they were walking to Washington. They were walking to the seat of government and, and they were going to get justice. In fact, they called it the Department for Justice. It was right there in the name. As soon as they arrived in Washington, they were going to get justice. So they had this, this incredible faith in the American system, a lot, a lot more than, than most Americans, uh, I, I think. Um, we didn't know that there was a, deep in the federal government, there was a, um, a, a pretty extraordinary advocacy that we would find. But along the, along the way, the men had this incredible faith. And how long did it take for them to get justice? Well, um, the great escape took three nights. Uh, the hotel uh, uh, hideout was eight days. The march took 14 or 15 days. But the story was three years long. Um, it took three years for Ebi Raju to be reunited with his wife and his, uh, his son. Um, that finally happened at, at the Atlanta airport when his son was already three. Uh, Ebi finally reunited with his wife, Bincy and their son and started their American lives. We'll get back to our interview with Socket Sony later in the show. Now we want to hear firsthand from one of these migrant workers. Danielle Castellanos is Director of Workforce Engagement with Resilience Force. He told Ariana Brocious about his personal experience working in disaster recovery. I was brought from Peru, you know, or in my original country, to New Orleans, Louisiana, after a month of Hurricane Katrina. You know, uh, me and 300 more workers came to rebuild the city after the hurricane, you know, and we were exploited. Uh, they offered very good wages, you know, they said they, they're going to be paid $15 the hour in regular time, in, in overtime, no? Overtime, in 60-hour guarantee, you know, it was a, a very good amount of money, but in order to do that, you have to invest $5,000 to get the visa, you know? Uh, basically came to the to New Orleans with a, a big debt. You know, when, when we arrived, they made us sign papers in, in English, even though the 300 workers don't speak English. You know, we, we Spanish is my first language. You know, and they made us sign with no read. You said you have to, you want to work? Yes, sign. So you're you're five thousand dollars in debt just to get there, and then you have to sign away rights that you're not even sure of because you can't understand the language of the paperwork. And then what's the work itself like? I am an engineer in, in Peru, you know, and, and I speak a little of English, you know, and this is the reason that they said you are going to be the crew leader, you know, and, and, and all the people that we hire in Peru, there were people that, that, that were working in construction, you know, but when we arrived, even though the, all the, the, the promises that they gave us, I said that the money, that a 60-hour guarantee of work, a good place to live, you know, they were false, you know, because when we arrived, they, they said, okay, we, we don't have the work for 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 to doing the rebuild. You want to work in a hotel. And then we are, we are not paying you the 15 or $16 they, they promised us. They pay 602 to us for an hour. Wow. You know? And, you know, and, uh, and they don't give us the 60 hours. They give us 20 hours. So you're getting way less money per hour. You're getting less 
hours per week and this the work itself is not at all what it was described. What were the conditions like in terms of where you were living and the job site that you were working on? The conditions were very, very bad, you know. They put us eight people in a room, in a little tiny hotel room, not in a big a suite, eight people in bombets. And uh, they, they have holes in, in the, the ceiling, you know. And I asked the supervisor if we're going to work here or we're going to live here. And he said, he said both. We, you know, joke this with, they said, oh, it's a five-star uh, hotel. Yeah, well, five star because they, this is a hole in the ceiling that you see five stars. This is the the yoga that we are doing, and and actually was was terrible. The conditions were terrible. When you are coming to the United States, you you think about the freedom land, you know, the uh, land that you you could start restart yourself and have a lot of uh, opportunities. But you know, when you come with a, with a visa like this. Because I came legal to the United States, and, and, and you know, brought by a company to rebuild the city, you think it's going to be better, but it was worse than come uh, undocumented. You know, when you cross the border, you have you are free to go to another job. I I wasn't, you know, because the the name of my 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 owner was in my passport. If I try to go to another company, they immediately they call immigration, and and they, I will be deported. Right. So even though it was legal immigration and you were given a temporary visa, you were definitely exploited as the term you used because you weren't able to transfer employers. You were stuck in that situation. You know, the the, the situation was getting worse and worse and worse, you know, because for, for me, for example, only was the $5,000. But for the Dominicans, they, they, they forced them to sign a paper in Dominican Republic saying that if you don't come back, you lose your home, you lose your house. In the first month after a disaster, they, they said, come in, come in, help, help, help. So they don't care about your status. They don't care about who you are, if you speak English or not. They want help, you know, to clean up, to, to the debris, the, the trees, you know, the, the, the blue tarps and all of this. But then, you, in a few months after that, you know, they start thinking, oh, look, look these guys are illegal, or they are Mexican, or they, or they don't speak the language. And the police... And at the same time, it start, you know, chasing you, bothering you, pulling tickets for anything, you know, only for racial profile, basically. Because you're, you're driving and you have a Texas plate or, or a Louisiana plate, you know, and they stop you because that. And they say, okay, you don't have a paper. A few days ago, I was going with one of our members to the court because he, he got a, tra- a traffic ticket because he doesn't have a driver's license from the United States. He has a driver's license for his country. I was waiting in the court, and I saw 60 people in the same situation. And all the people were charged $520. So it's yeah. a catch cow for the, for the county. You know, they don't arrest them. They, they, say, they put a ticket, continue working, but then again, they're going to catch them and put a ticket. You know, this is a continue, you know, process of getting money from them. You know, part of my things I'm doing now is try to connect the workers with the uh, governmental offices in a local place to raise their standards of them. Because right now they are sleeping in the, in the parking lot. They're sleeping in the parking lot. They don't have a, a shower. They, they were chased by the police. The work you're doing now, as you said, is to improve workplace conditions for these migrant disaster workers and looking into the uh, enforcement of workplace standards. We know that the climate is accelerating the rate and and occurrence of these natural disasters. So 
In your mind, what does the future look like for people who are working on these disaster recovery projects? There is a lot of room for, for people that are going to work there because, as you said, you know, unfortunately, the global warming is, is real. You know, and there is a lot of people that uh, they're going to suffer with not only hurricanes, you know. You see the wildfire, you see snow, snowstorm, you see tornadoes. So that means that the people are coming into the, to this new new way to work. But the companies take advantage of, of the immigration status. And after they, they deliver the, the job or they finish the job, they, they are not paying. And actually, a lot of these big companies, they do that. But so they got the contract. So you have to understand this well. They got the, the big contract with a, a resort, for example, with a resort in Fort Myers Beach. You know, and, and because they don't have the, the, the workers, they hire some, some other little companies. You know, and this company hired the workers. Oh, and we see, we saw in the past that, that seven layers, of, you know, you know, and, and of, of work and until they get the job, the worker, no? But and, and one of these guys in these layers said, okay, I don't want to pay because they are illegal. And they were not paid, you know. And, and, and actually, that's one of the biggest problems that we are having in, in any place that we go. You know, and, and this is a challenge for us, but you know, we we try to to you know move forward because there there are workers too. That's uh, there is a lot of challenge in my job, but you know I I, I like challenge and I try to to improve the, the situation for all. Danielle, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. This sounds like incredibly important work. So, Daniel Castellanos is director of workforce engagement at Resilience Force. Thank you again for joining us on Climate One. Thank you, Ariana. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the people who clean up after climate and other natural disasters. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help them have their own deeper climate conversations. Coming up, the outdated framework of American disaster recovery. Today, disasters are much bigger and they hit the uninsured, they hit renters, they hit people without personal wealth. All of these people spend down their own money trying to recover. Um, And the government help doesn't come fair enough or fast enough. That's up next. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking with author Socket Sony about the people who make disaster recovery possible. Given that so much of the disaster recovery work is triggered by burning fossil fuels, I asked him to share his own climate awakening journey. I was a labor organizer, mm-hmm. um, and my journey started with um, helping protect workers in what had become the world's largest construction site the post-Katrina flooding had turned the American Gulf Coast into the largest construction site on Earth. And the workers were black and brown rebuilders standing under a 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee. And each morning, they'd be picked up by contractors, and I'd get on the buses with them and go out to the distant, dark corners of the Gulf Coast, protecting them 
as they rebuilt. Katrina was supposed to have been a once-in-a-hundred-year event. That's what it was called, a hundred-year flood. The truth is, since then, there have been over $200 billion disasters. And as these disasters grew more frequent and more destructive, workers would call me from new places, from Houston, from North Carolina, from South Carolina, then from the Midwest. Um, and I'd go to these places to protect them. Um, and what occurred to me was that it was the same workers, many of the same people who stood under the Robert E. Lee statue were now fixing newer and newer places after newer and newer disasters. And I came to understand these workers as the white blood cells of the climate crisis. Each time there was injury, these were the workers who arrived to heal. You know, I've lived through numerous California wildfires that are climate-amplified disasters that displace people, and I've welcomed first responders to stay in my home. I've seen firefighting helicopters fly directly over my home, and yet the people who come afterward were invisible to me. And until I read your book, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say like, I'd never thought about that they knew they existed. So how are the fates of resilience workers intertwined with the circumstances of people who are displaced by climate disasters? Because those are the people that I've, I see in the media and I've thought about, not the workers. Absolutely. Look, you know, we spend a lot of time and attention um, on a disaster for the 48 hours that follow, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, people are coming out of emergency shelters, and they're coming back into their homes. That's when the cameras usually leave. What I see, what my team at Resilience foresees, is what happens after the cameras leave. And this is what happens. After a flood or a hurricane or a fire, uh, a clock starts ticking. The first race is to get people back in their homes. To do that, you need to rebuild sometimes tens of thousands of homes so that people can turn the lights back on. The next race is to rebuild the community infrastructure, schools, the hospitals, so that a tax base can stay. Because how do you stay in your home if your child's new school is three hours away, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the last race is then um, the long race to build a viable economy, uh, to bring in investment, to rebuild economic development, um, to, to turn this place into... Uh, an economy that can thrive, right? All of that depends on resilience workers. And in fact, um, after a hurricane or a flood or fire, people are under enormous pressure. Everybody's waiting for the workers. And the workers are waking up in their cars at a Home Depot. Uh, that's when the real rebuilding, the real recovery begins. It used to be that most disaster recovery was done by local mom and pop operations. Now, 17 years after Katrina, there are over, as you mentioned, $20 billion disasters every year. And disaster recovery is big business. What's the scale of this emerging industry? Well, you know, when I used to stand in um, the shadow of that Robert E. Lee statue, most of the contractors that would come to pick up workers were small mom and pop shops. There was a van or two and uh, some kind of you know, ad hoc payroll system. Uh, a lot of these construction companies were new. What's happened since then is that an entire economy has grown. There's this $2 trillion resilience economy. Um, as uh, 
FEMA money, HUD money, other public spending, and billions of dollars of insurance money has come in to help repair, to pay for repairs. Um, you've had the growth of an economy. So on one hand, that means the growth of a workforce, the, the ranks of resilience workers, the legion of workers that arrives to rebuild and repair has grown. So have the companies. These companies have consolidated. They've merged. Banks will only lend to a certain size company. So companies have to get bigger. And so these companies have turned into giants. Um, there's a very mature disaster restoration industry full of enormous companies, many of whom are now owned by private equity investors. Private equity companies see the future. They see that profit can be derived from climate disasters. Um, and so they're buying up these companies. Um, and so, for example, you know, um, the state of California is a large institutional investor uh, in the disaster restoration industry. Um, there's huge amounts of dollars. Are there labor protections? I would think with state funding, government funding, that there would be some labor protection so it's not exploited workers from India doing the work. Well, we're fighting for labor protections, and some states are better than others. But the challenge the workers face is that this is a deeply subcontracted industry. Mm -hmm. And um, the rights get lost in the layers. So there's, uh, you know, that worker who's earning $9 an hour on a roof in Florida. And if it rains, that contractor at the bottom wants that worker to stay on the roof. The worker is undocumented, doesn't have recourse. If he slips and falls, he'll get injured. So that's the situation of that worker. But six layers above him, there's a $100 million contract right, given to uh, an enormous uh, contractor that perhaps has done half a billion dollars of business since Hurricane Sandy. So that's, that's the contracting system. And we need to clean this up. Many more workers uh, will work in dangerous, difficult conditions. If we don't, that's really some of the work that Resilience Force is doing. We often hear about a just transition from fossil fuels that includes people marginalized by unbridled capitalism, driven by oil, gas, and coal. Preparing for our conversation, I learned of a new term, just recovery. Jaisha Dutta at the University of New Orleans writes that the status quo in this area is aid, extract, and displace which is, we've heard some of that from Katrina and elsewhere, and asserts that a just recovery would include respond, recover, and rebuild. Can you unpack that vision for a just recovery? Absolutely. Uh, Jayesh's work is uh, prescient and, and um, always on point. Uh, I completely agree with her. Um, you know, what we're focused on is a just recovery with an equity frame and a racial justice frame in which workers are protected and building uh, their own personal economy uh, through a family supporting job, building their wealth through this work, and a recovery where residents coming back are gaining um, from all the dollars circulating in the system. What you have right now for poor people in this country Recovery is robbery. It's not just disasters that create inequality. It's, importantly, American recoveries. American disaster recovery is based on a mid-sized Pennsylvania flood that happened in the 90s. Uh, 
which hit mostly insured homeowners. Today, disasters are much bigger, and they hit the uninsured, they hit renters, they hit people without personal wealth. All of these people spend down their own money trying to recover, um, and the government help doesn't come fair enough or fast enough. That's the equitable recovery we need. The just recovery we need is one that builds worker rights and worker protections and turns resilience into a significant source of jobs for middle class growth and that helps residents in disaster hit areas keep their health and wealth and build it. And I've talked to other guests about how uh, people controlling public dollars want to have the biggest impact for those public dollars to be accountable to taxpayers. And that provides a bias toward uh, wealthier neighborhoods with higher property values. So the people who need it least are gonna in a better suited to get the government money because it's that's where the property value is. This cycle seems to to be repeating itself. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why Congress really needs to rewrite the rules of recovery in the United States. The rules are wrong. The way they're written, money will always flow towards the 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 uh, already wealthy uh, and seep away uh, from those who are not. Right. Money flows toward power. According to a New Yorker article that features your work, quote, chasing disasters requires a labor force that is open to arduous work and is instantly mobile. So the big companies rely on ill-regulated group of subcontractors and brokers, as you're talking about. And the New Yorker goes on to say that after a disaster, contractors may owe $30,000 to each worker by the time the last paycheck is due. And instead of paying, they'll often call ICE or the police. Is that really, is that still happening? And what's in place to protect those workers? Payday raids are now um, widely expected. Um, people um, hold their breath on payday uh, and don't know it if at the end of the day they'll see a paycheck or the inside of a jail. The bigger problem is that we've come to rely on a group of workers that's so vulnerable with so little protection. And uh, our sense of emergency after disasters um, lets this become the norm. You know, when I go to sites that are hit by hurricanes or floods and fires, I usually ask for a show of hands. I show up at the Home Depot uh, when people are waking up. I show up at whatever flooded school or home uh, the workers are sleeping in. And we gather people and we ask people, how many hurricanes have you worked? How many fires? How many floods? Um, most of the time, people have worked at this point 10, 15, or 20 disasters. So you've got this extraordinarily skilled workforce. You've got these people who have done it again and again, people who can make miracles happen. I've seen workers rebuild um, areas the size of football fields in a matter of days, you know, because they can. Um, but they're vulnerable while they do it. They're not paid enough, if at all. Uh, if they report abuse, they face retaliation, threats of deportation. And the other problem is there aren't enough of them. That's why our vision is a protected workforce, but also a much more expanded workforce so that America can become climate resilient. And your organization, Resilience Force, has initiated a number of legal actions against companies that hire recovery workers and then expose them to unsafe working conditions. How do the big companies shield themselves from liability by some of the layering and contracting, I guess you mentioned? Um, so 
What are the companies doing in response? Well, a lot of the companies uh, subcontract in order to avoid responsibility. They don't want to be responsible for workers and their conditions. Um, but I'll tell you um, a different kind of story. We were in Louisiana after a recent hurricane um, and met with a group of workers who hadn't been paid uh, from a job they were doing. They were rebuilding uh, about a dozen public schools um, for a Louisiana school district. Um, and we got into a terrible fight with the contractor. Um, workers were practically on strike. They were, they were fighting for their paychecks. Um, and we took the fight all the way up to the top contractor. Um, we basically, you know, woke the CEO up on Thanksgiving Day uh, with a letter. And what started as a really tense negotiation between him and me turned into a long-term partnership. Um, this ended up being a very enlightened CEO, a man by the name of Mark Davis, a really great leader in this space, who decided to take the workers at their word, believe them, call up the contractor, fix the labor dispute, pay the workers back out of his own pocket, and then we built a partnership to clean up the industry. So that's an example of uh, a corporate leader who's doing the right thing, um, because he had an enlightened self-interest. He sees that he needs this workforce. He sees that he needs them to be skilled and trained, and, and we can provide that for him. And I think more and more companies will see the light and start doing what he's doing. Yeah, that sounds like enlightened capitalism and seeing labor workers as a yeah, as a allies and partners, not just yeah expenses to be. That's right, as an asset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Than, than a liability. And how do these conditions compare to? You mentioned farm workers not working in flooded fields. How does this compare to other migrant laborers in other industries such as agriculture? Well, you know, the thing that's really stark to see when you're in a disaster zone is. You get there, and it is dark for miles around. There isn't a stable structure to sleep in. There's nobody around. And so if you're a worker and you're rebuilding, there's no infrastructure for you. FEMA hasn't built a camp for you. You know, there isn't a barracks or a trailer park. Uh, there isn't a mess hall or a cafeteria. You really are on your own. You're in the dark. You're sleeping in the car, but it's very hard to sleep for weeks in a car. So you crawl under the car and you sleep on the floor uh, under that car. That's your cover from the elements. Mm. Right? You wake up in the morning, you wash yourself uh, with bottled water, you brush your teeth, and then you go to work. And work is 12 hours in the hot sun rebuilding roofs. So it really is the case that there's no infrastructure for these workers. That's part of the thing that political leaders in this country need to change. And it would be very easy for governors and for Congress, um, when they send money to rebuild and repair, to also say what the conditions should be for the workers. That really needs to change. Coming up, the importance of building an industry around resilience. I think there'll be a day uh, not long off in America, where resilience, like manufacturing and auto work in a different era, where resilience will be the basis of a lot of well-paid middle-class jobs. That's up next. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. 
We're talking with Socket Sony, author of The Great Escape and founder and director of Resilience Force. Sony grew up in New Delhi and then studied English literature and theater at the University of Chicago. But then he missed the deadline on immigration paperwork and became undocumented. I asked him how that experience informs his empathy for disaster recovery workers. You know, my, my parents were probably the only parents in the history of Indian civilization who allowed their kid to fly to America to study theater. And, um, and that's what I was doing when, uh, when I missed an immigration deadline. I didn't think it was very serious. Uh, I thought it was about as grave a situation as an unreturned library book. Mm. It probably would have been, but then 9-11 happened. And like a lot of immigrants, uh, I became undocumented and I lost my foothold um, in American life. And so, um, you know, I was in a, in a deeply precarious situation. I was very afraid. I think it set me up uh, to really understand the fear and pain of these workers. I wasn't like them, but we had that common experience and it gave me a basis of empathy. And actually, as our Freedom March was coming to D.C., right at the moment when the workers needed to be the most sturdy, strong, and stable, I was at my most vulnerable. I had, uh, you know, a precarious immigration situation I had to fix. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, I, and I had to navigate whether to tell them or how to tell them. I think having an experience like that made me especially able to listen uh, with deep empathy to their fears and uh, and administer to their fears. Yeah, your situation was you had a lot of privilege relative to them, and yet you were closer to them than certainly you know I have been or uh, many people. You'd been closer to their shoes. That's right, actually, in their shoes. Um, it was really interesting to hear you talk about the transformation of the CEO who was an antagonist and became an ally. Sometimes these workers help people who wish to see them deported. You write about MAGA supporters in Florida. Have you seen people change or soften their views on immigration after being helped by these immigrant workers? You know, I think about this family in Florida. Um, we do acts of service with workers um, at Resilience Force. Our members uh, on Sundays, instead of going to church, deploy to some big community service event where they rebuild the home or the church um, of people who can't afford to rebuild themselves. So one such Sunday uh, in the Florida Panhandle, uh, we helped rebuild the home of a family um, that was in a really tough spot. They didn't know if their repairs would be covered by insurance um, and we just came in and spent the Sunday cleaning up the yard um, and getting their home back in order. Hmm. Afterwards, we had dinner with them, and usually we supply interpreters so that people can form friendships, hmm. build bonds, um, and that was an extraordinary dinner. People uh, talked across language, across political divides, across stretches of ideology. Um, they talked about food and family and America. Mm. And that family um, that we helped out had a sign they put up after the hurricane um, that said, strangers will be shot. Well, after that dinner, they took that sign down. I think they, mm. uh, I think they are now more in a position to welcome 
strangers. And that's the kind of change uh, I, I see. You know, disasters provide an opening unlike perhaps any other in American life for people to solve problems together and build lasting friendships together that can help us face future disasters with greater resilience. Mm, the people breaking bread can bring people together and overcome those differences. That's a uplifting story. Resilience Force created a comic book style manual teaching workers how to document job site abuses. It tells them to photograph the license plates of their employers. What else do you do to help resilience workers assert their power and know their rights under U.S. laws? Well, the big thing we do is confer recognition on workers. I mean, like you said before, this has largely been an invisible workforce, mm -hmm. largely unrecognized. Um, you know, we've come in and given it a name, called them mm -hmm. resilience workers. Um, we've given them an identity. Um, they have uh, ID cards that have their names and pictures, but also the hurricanes, floods, and fires they've worked. Um, we're working with the administration to confer recognition on the resilience occupation. We're working with um, officials uh, to, for the first time, add a series of resilience occupations to the roster of American jobs. And then we're working uh, in places like the Gulf Coast and California to build training centers so that workers can get trained and upskilled so that we can build this at scale workforce in disaster prone areas. I think there'll be a day uh, not long off in America where resilience like manufacturing and auto work in a different era, where resilience will be the basis of a lot of well-paid middle-class jobs. Um, but that's not inevitable. Um, it'll happen if these interventions we make turn what are right now bad jobs into lots of lots, lots and lots of good family-supporting jobs. That's, that's some of the work we're doing. And you actually have this vision for a resilience core, you know, modeled on, modeled on the Works Progress Administration of the New Deal. So what's the grand ambition for that? Well, the grand ambition couldn't be simpler, which is that you take every city in America, you can't think of a city in America without a fire station and firefighters. We sh in, the, in the era of climate change, when climate adaptation has to be our country's, you know, top security uh, imperative. We're uh, adapting uh, to the changing climate and preparing for the disasters that could come day after tomorrow. That preparation uh, is key to any city's life, um, is key to any mayor who wants to keep his tax base or her tax base. That in that kind of era, just like firefighters, every city should have a resilience workforce. So in a place like New Orleans, we've built a resilience core. Uh, in Sonoma County, we've taken farm workers and trained them to be resilience workers. Um, these are places in America where already resilience workers exist, and they're helping an entire community prepare for the disasters to come and be resilient. And I spent some time in a, in a uh, live part-time in a rural area north of San Francisco. And sometimes there's resilience and fire planning. And sometimes that's the only time that certain neighbors talk to each other is when is fear can bring people together and planning about something that we know could happen. So I think it's another way to bring communities together before and 
and after. Many disaster recovery projects are funded through FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. You've talked a little bit about what needs to be reformed. What particularly re- with, with FEMA would you like to see to help uh, protect this vital workforce from abuse? Well, you know, FEMA really is doing the best it can, but it, it really is up to Congress to change the rules. FEMA mm. works within the constraints of something called the Stafford Act, um, which is the the rule book, you know, the playbook by which America designs recoveries. The Stafford Act is deeply out of date. It would be as if um, you put a phone booth in the middle of Silicon Valley. It's that out of date. It's it, you know, it's it's from another era. It, it wasn't written in the climate era. It wasn't built for the climate change era. Mm. Um, and it can't solve for the scale and frequency and destructiveness of disasters. If uh, if Congress were to rewrite some key rules, um, I, think, I think the top three would be adding worker protections to every dollar that goes to the ground to rebuild and repair so that workers are safe. Um, secondly, adding a racial equity lens so that those dollars specifically go to Native Americans, to black and brown homeowners, um, to to people who are renters and not just homeowners, to the elderly, to the uninsured. Um, you know, those are the kinds of rules that that if Congress rewrote, FEMA would be in a better situation to help. And the last thing just is that, you know, um, right now, uh, FEMA isn't allowed to make permanent repairs to homes. You can only make, you know, just think about it, your home floods or sets on fire, right? Uh, Well, you might repair it just enough to turn the lights back on, but you actually need to pay for a whole lot more repair to make it back to how it was before the flood, let alone built better to face the next flood. Um, That really should be a government expenditure. There has to be a public option for resilience uh, if you're going to make poor people resilient. When I started this work 15 years ago, looked at the McKinsey cost curves and basically thought that once the elite elites realized what was at risk, that there would be some benevolence and awakening and, and uh, like, oh boy, we better fix this because it, it threatens all of us. Uh, but hearing you talk about payday raids, which is a new, t- new term to me, um, it just makes me doubt capitalism even more than I've been doubting a lot of capital, unbridled capitalism, not capitalism writ large. So I'm curious about your journey, you know, about humanity and climate wondering, you know, we've seen some better angels rise through these things and we've seen some real exploitation. How, what's been your personal emotional journey through this? Well, what I see all the time is that disasters make people deeply interdependent, they make people rely on each other in new ways or in ways that are newly visible. And so, you know, in Florida after Hurricane Ian, a lot of the business owners and homeowners, uh, poor and wealthy, big and small, want the immigrants to stay in Florida who are rebuilding Florida and they want them to to flourish. Uh, Among the companies, Yes, there are the CEOs who won't do anything about labor exploitation, but there are also the Mark Davises of the world who are spending time and energy, not just making sure they're doing the right thing, um, but 
helping other companies see the light because they need the labor. So I, I, I think we've got an opening after disasters uh, to focus on that interdependence and to make, um, you know, to, to make the, the um, you know, to, to make those who, who want to do it for themselves and are on their own, to make them the outliers. I think there's an ecosystem after disasters um, that you find. People are in the business of solving problems. I think there are more of those than the kinds of people you're talking about who just want to leave everybody behind and fly to the moon. To escape, because I sometimes think that disasters bring out the best of us and the worst of us. And you're seeing, I, I'm often, you know, moved to tears when I see the Cajun Navy deployed and, you know, taking grandmothers out of their homes. And these are volunteers with their boats, just rescuing people they don't know. There's tremendous humanity and, and, and grace that comes forward in these times. And you're saying there's, there's more of that. I think there's a lot more of that. I think, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, um, those who have the least are often the most generous with what they have mm -hmm. after disasters. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where you see the best of America. I mean, I have knocked on doors of families living in their flooded homes, um, and I'm invited in, and people share the little food they have with me because I haven't had lunch. They're mm -hmm. grateful for the help we're bringing them. Um, so I think that's... that's uh, you know, that makes me hopeful. Um, I think that as these disasters continue, there will have to be a, a new kind of social compact, particularly in states like California and Florida, where you'll see a, a much more robust safety net, uh, much deeper supports for workers. Um, that just has to happen because um, otherwise disaster recovery isn't possible. Socket Sony is founder and director of Resilience Force and author of the new book, The Great Escape. Thank you so much for sharing your insights in these compelling stories who will say were invisible to me and many others and bringing them their stories forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be hard and awkward and interesting and fascinating. And it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Our team also includes Sarah Catherine Coxon and Wensi Shada. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>